What I have to say this morning should take about three hours, um, but I'm going to leave a lot out in order to get to the meat of the thing. So if you want to turn with me to John chapter 8, and that that's what I'm talking about. I'm not going to read it. It's too long and I need the time. But um, it is Matthew chapter 8. Sorry, John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And it begins in verse 3. But just to give a very quick background to when it happens... It says in verse 2, And early in the morning, Jesus came again into the temple. So this is going to take place in the temple, which is the headquarters of the whole Jewish religion of that day. A vast temple courtyard. I don't know how many people. It says all the people were coming to him. And so Jesus is probably sitting and he is addressing the people and he sat well, it says he sat down and began to teach them and then and this is where our story begins into that crowd and that's often forgotten the scribes and the pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and they set her in the middle Okay, as I say, the rest of the story is there, and I think many of you know that story anyway, but I, I'm just going to plunge right in. This, I'll tell you, is one of the most sordid stories in the New Testament. It is also one of the most glorious stories in the New Testament. It shows the wretchedness, shall I even use the word filth, of religion, over against the wonder of the love of God that goes to the point where, for some people, this story is scandalous. Now, the some people are not so much today, but down through the centuries. If you look in, in your Bible, it's in just about any Bible you've got, there will be some reference there that these verses about the woman taken in adultery are not found in all versions that we have for over the centuries. And that that's interesting. It's a, it's a story that is found everywhere, but no one seemed to know where to put it. It just didn't seem to have a place. And so they ended up putting it in John's Gospel because it sounds like John. But um, why, why was that? Well, because religion, and specifically, I'll name him Augustine, the people think he's so great, but Augustine, who was the actual seedbed of religion in the West, uh, he said that this should never be in the Bible. It was scandalous because it promoted immorality. That's word for word from Augustine. He said that Jesus forgave this? Oh, no. I think he's almost saying she should have been stoned. Um, but he said it shouldn't be in the Bible. Well, that only tells me something about Augustine, that he didn't know the love of God as the entire Bible. This, this fits to me perfectly in the Scripture. This is what Jesus is like. And so here he is. Jesus is teaching. And as he is teaching, there is this scuffle in the back of the crowd, and people are pushing their way through. Very rudely, 
because the Pharisees were very rude people. And uh, the Pharisee, if you don't know what I'm talking about there, it was really a denomination, a denomination within the big umbrella of Judaism. And it was a denomination that said they were the holiest of people, that they kept the law, and if you didn't keep the law, then you're out and, and you're finished. They were very rigid. They were fundamentalists. They'd memorized most of the Old Testament. And here they come, looking every inch as they thought themselves to be, the religious police of the day. And they had this poor, wretched woman. Uh, her hair is disheveled. Her clothes are, are wrapped around her because they dragged her out of bed from somewhere. And now they're pushing her ahead of them through the crowd. The, the look on that poor woman's face of absolute terror because they're saying, we're going to have you stoned to death. And, and she, she's filled with shame because they're announcing to everybody what she's done. And so if you can picture this woman with her head down, ashamed to look at anybody and her eyes furtive looking because of just sheer terror as what's going to happen next. And they begin by saying, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. Well, now, I smell a religious rat, big time, because number one, you caught her in the act. You talk as if it was just happening on the street corner, and we always just bumped into her, you know. Um, you caught her? How on earth did you do that? But secondly... Uh, and they knew this, of course, they knew the law. But uh, where was the man? Under the law, you could not just prosecute the woman. You had to have the man there too. And so he's mysteriously disappeared. What I see here, now I can't prove it, but I, I've studied the Pharisees for over 50 years, and I think I know these chaps. Um, you see, the Pharisee, they did not know how to love. And that is not an overstatement. They did not comprehend what love was, as indeed religion is loveless. They saw what they might call love as you pleasure me. You make me feel good. Therefore, I accept you. You're included. I put you inside my circle. Uh, there was no sense whatsoever that I've got anything to give to you. Uh, the idea is you exist to please me. And if you don't, if you begin to fall away from what I count as right and good and pleasurable, then we'll just have to dismiss you, you poor idiot nothing. Out you go. That was a Pharisee mentality. I can prove that from their own writings. Now, when it came to marriage, what do you do with that if you're a Pharisee? Nothing, because you can't love. You don't understand love. And so the law of marriage in the Pharisee society was that I take this woman into my house in marriage in order to please me. And that is her function in life. She must please me. If she doesn't, I have absolute right to dismiss her and if she displeases. What does that mean? And again, we've got this in writing. It means that if she burned your toast at breakfast, 
you can have her out the door before you've eaten the fried eggs. It's and out the door meant you are gone. You don't exist to me. But they would not divorce them. They just dismissed them, which meant they've put a married woman on the street and therefore she can never marry another because she doesn't have divorce. And the Pharisee would not divorce. That was part of his punishment. Leave her out there. And what does a woman in AD 30 do when she's on the street? Because, you see, there were no jobs for women. Women didn't work. Women had their place under the protection of a man. The man gave the food, the shelter, the money. She existed under the shelter of a man, protection of a man. And so if she's on her own on the street, then what does she do? And the fact she can't remarry because she's not being released in a divorce, she she's stuck. And that's where you find these women who were prostitutes or had sold themselves. It was a matter of survival. They had been dropped, and now they've got to eat and shelter somehow. That that now I am strongly suggesting strongly suggesting that this woman could well have been at one time the wife of one of these Pharisees who has now been kicked out and has found herself in that situation. Why? Because when they came up with this plot to trap Jesus, they needed a woman. They needed a woman who would be the bait and to... You know, uh, Pharisees, they are such holy people, you see. They only read the Bible. They only pray. They only go to temple services. How would they ever know a loose woman of the street? Huh, yeah, they knew her all right. Because once she's been dumped out on the street under Pharisee law, she she can be used by anybody else. The Pharisees probably had her and, and dumped her out on the street again. Um, because they said she's a nothing, she's a zero, she's not a person, and therefore it's not adultery because I just enjoyed her and like enjoying a toy or have a rag doll. She's a nothing. They seem to know her and know that she was pliable, she could be manipulated. Because that man, where, where, where was that man in the story? He had to be one of them, one of them. This is a setup. And, and and he's going to draw her in because they need her for the bait. But of course, once he's been caught, well, he mysteriously disappears. Of course he did. The, the temple police, the religious guys, he's one of their own. He, he's been in there to make it happen. And so now you just get out of here quickly. Um, but it's even more sordid because caught in the act of adultery. Dear Lord, what does it mean? It means that these... I'm, I'm getting angry. Um, the, these guys actually hid in the bedroom to watch so that they could have evidence against her. Look, let's leave it at that. It, I can't prove some of it is obvious, but not all of it. But as I say, studying the Pharisees, that's just exactly what they did. They hated Jesus. Of course they did. They confronted head on with the love of God, and, and they didn't know what to do with that. And so they set the traps. There's more than one in the New Testament. And this one, if you're looking at their mind, 
And what they were after is a brilliant trap because they dragged this woman, they say what they say, and they said, under our law, that's in the best manuscripts, under our law, this woman should be stoned to death. But what do you say? Now, now get this picture. Can you, can you picture it with me? Here's a great crowd of people. They're the onlookers. They've been the congregation that Jesus is teaching. Here is Jesus. There are the accusers. And there is the woman. She stands surrounded. And all are looking at her with eyes of disgust and rejection because of what the accusers, the Pharisees, have said. And they are now putting the whole thing onto Jesus, and they are saying that Jesus should now be, in fact, they've appointed him as the judge in the temple. Tell us, what shall we do? What would you do? Well, see, the trap is they pretty well knew. They knew Jesus. He's not going to say stone her. They, they can figure that. And so if he says, no, do not stone her, then they say, but Moses said, and you say, therefore you are a heretic, you're a blasphemer, and it's out. They could now officially say, he destroys the law of Moses, and no one can listen to him. That's, they, they've got him. It, it's, he can't move there. Oh, but it gets worse. Notice he said, under our law, under our law? Yes, because there was another law that overrode everything in Israel at that time, which was the law of the Romans. The Romans were the army of occupation. And they said, you don't stone. If anybody is to be executed, we do it our way. Okay. That means, you see, anytime Jesus would be teaching in Jerusalem anyway, certainly in the temple, there'd be a Roman soldier there. We often overlook that, but they were listening. Because one word against Rome, one word that would suggest insurrection or riot, and Jesus would be arrested. So if, if he ever said, yes, stone her, the Romans would arrest him. They've got him. It's a closed deal. That's why they needed this woman. Oh, find a woman. Find a woman. Here she is, pushed pushed into the temple courtyard. I, I mean, just just look at her. She's recoiling from the touch of these Pharisees. I, I don't know if you can put yourself in the head of this woman. Um, she has been used in the most unspeakable way and, and done so with a toss of a hand. She's nothing. Used and, and tossed out of the way. Just a thing to please some who are rotten to the core. She's a throwaway. She doesn't matter. We just need her for this moment. A good word in English is chattel. That means when you're owned, a slavery of ownership. She was owned by these men, owned and thrown away, maybe owned and thrown away every night. And now they have reduced her to bait. She's the bait. And they're going to throw like fishing. They're going to throw her in front of Jesus and hope he rises to the bait. That's disgusting. A bait? I mean, they're saying she's no more than a worm on a hook. 
we catch the fish. Who cares about the woman? That's just, we're after the fish. Who cares about this woman? We're after Jesus because she's a perfect bait. She's the cheese in the mouse trap. Who cares about the cheese? It's the mouse we're after. Do you, do you feel this? And of course, how does she see herself? She sees herself through the eyes of these people. And has she ever really had a chance to see herself any other way? Because whenever she was a woman in a house, she was still seen that way as a mere nothing. I can hardly find the words to say it. I mean, to see herself through the eyes of those people and to feel then, that's me, that's my identity. I'm nothing, even though there's that, that scream inside of her that I am something, but she'd almost forgotten if she ever really knew what something was. She'd always been, that's it. And and do you, do you understand that in these situations, the person loses their feeling? Um, they have been so treated that that they have become solidified in the, their feelings. They can neither give a feeling any more than receive it. A bait? A worm? Does a worm have feelings toward the fisherman? Does a, I mean, no, it's a bait. It's a nothing. A chattel just possessed and used, thrown away. She's got no feelings. And, and she's just like a robot lost her humanity. Could she ever trust another man for sure? You could say she's a frozen block of ice. She could, Nothing going in and nothing coming out. She's lost inside the ice. The, the abuser leaves deep footprints in the abused so that to the abuser it was an hour of pleasure and throw it away. But to the abused, it's going to last a lifetime. That something has been stolen, something taken, some terrible imprint upon their psyche. And that's this woman who stands in the middle of it all. And for all those listening, this can be applied to any form of sexual abuse, that's for sure. Um, this is the story of sexual abuse. But it can also be applied to the bullies. The bully at school is one of the Pharisees. The bully on Facebook is a Pharisee, soulless, and doesn't know what love is. And those who are bullied stand in this lady's place. And and in relationships, broken relationships, I think every person has touched this. Maybe not like this, but the feeling of being rejected as a non-person, just dumped what you thought was your friend now suddenly just betrays you and throws you away. Yeah, this has many applications. She, like all of those I've just mentioned, stand there before the gawking eyes of the crowd, before the accusers, with no defender. Nobody would defend her, not in that day. She's without defense, and she's terrified. And in that crowd, oh, they, they weren't the Pharisees. They were just the ordinary come and goes of Jerusalem. But I don't think you could find a friendly face there. 
Who's going to go and stand beside that woman? We caught her in the act of adultery. Forget it. No, there's not a friendly face. She's putting her head down. She doesn't want to. There's not an eye to look at. No, don't look at the crowd. There is rejecting. They're, They're pulling their children closer. Don't go near her. She's one of those women. Oh, yeah, we know who she is. Disgust. And then they threw her the bait to the fish. Moses, in our law, said, what do you say? Isn't Jesus fantastic? He accepted the bait. (laughs) The fish rose for the bait. But he didn't do it like a stupid fish. He knew what he was doing. He rose to the bait to transform the bait into a queen of heaven. What a... What a story. In Jesus, she met love and probably met love for the very first time in her life so that she really wouldn't know what's happening. The love that she met in Jesus, the polar opposite of the Pharisees, because the love that Jesus is And as I've told you many times before, in the New Testament, they had to find a different word because the love, if you can call it that, of the Pharisees in the Greek language is eros, which incidentally is more or less a translation of what we mean by love today in our English language. But the love that we find in Jesus, it's an unearthly love. And you have to understand that. It's unearthly. It's a, it's a love that is the original love out of which we were created, for which we were created, and, and to dwell therein. And we, the new word was agape, uh, the God love, and she met it in, in the person of Jesus. And what is that very quickly? It's the passionate movement. You must never think of God's love as being passive. It's absolutely not one millisecond of passivity about the love of Jesus. The love of Jesus, the love of the Holy Trinity is active to limitlessness. It is the continual, passionate movement of love moving outward. The Pharisee was moving inward. It's all about me and you exist for me. But the love of Jesus was the the passionate outward movement that he exists for you. He is giving himself. This love is self-giving self. If the Pharisee was self-for-self, this is self-giving self. And therefore it was not looking of what can you do for me. It was, therefore, to those that the rest of the world would say they're useless, they're zeros, they're not beautiful, they're... they're, No, that's God's love has no file for that. God's love reaches out to everyone, down to the lowest. It's It's a passionate movement. And it's a movement that is not sympathetic. It doesn't just pat you on the back and say, well, you know, chin up, I'm with you. It meant that he comes into where she is and stands where she is and takes her pain 
and takes the whole mess of her life and takes it and makes it his own and gives to her his righteousness, his innocence, and his freedom. That's the love of God. That this love that God is takes limitless risk. And I use that word carefully. For he will stop at literally nothing to deal with whatever would seek to separate him from the person of his love. And of course, for Jesus, we're talking about the cross. In fact, not for Jesus. I tell you, that's the Trinity. That, that's the cost the Holy Trinity, shall I say, paid, although it was paid to no one. But uh, it was the, the, the cost of, of saying, I'm going to stand where you stand. I'm going to bring you to where I stand. And the cost of that was death and resurrection. That there is no limit to the risk. And it, it reaches, knowing them to be unlovely, but this love bestows loveliness upon them and exalts them. Because there is no way that a Pharisee could comprehend that the love of Jesus reaches to that woman where she is, that she might stand where he is on equal ground, one with him before the Father. That is no, no, um, there's no understanding. There's no possibility. And as this story unfolds, she is all that matters to Jesus. He didn't give a fig about the Pharisees and their stupid trap. This bait that they've thrown to him, this rag doll that they kicked out into the middle, that's the only thing that matters to Jesus. Well, that's can get to you sometimes when you think about it. So how, how does that happen then? How, do, how is it that she's all that matters? He knelt down on the temple courtyard floor and began to do something in the sand. I honestly think he was doodling, but um, he did something there. What on earth is he doing? And I, I can see the crowd are all... They're all trying to, people at the back are standing on chairs, you know, let, let's, what, what's he doing? What's he writing? The, the Pharisees are looking and they shout louder, we're, we're talking to you. We said we caught this woman in adultery. And yet they say, what's he writing? You see, the Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote. Therefore, I have to assume it doesn't matter. Because you see, ever since that first crowd said, what is he writing? They've been saying that for 2,000 years. I've heard sermons on what he wrote. I've seen old articles on what they think he wrote. The fact is the Bible doesn't tell us. Why? Because it doesn't matter. It was the fact he did it, not what he did. And they're all looking to see, just like everybody else has for 2,000 years. But what is he doing? He's protecting her. Have you ever thought about that? Every eye was on her with rejection and disgust. And suddenly Jesus gets down and starts doodling. What happens? Every eye turns away from her 
and every eye is upon her. They've even forgotten her. They're saying, what's he doing? What's he doing? And as accusers, their, their accusations are becoming sort of silly. He's not even listening to them. And there too, they're, they're asking, telling him, you know, you've got to do something about this woman, but at the same time, they're stretching their heads. What, what's he doing? Everybody's eyes now have been drawn away from the woman and they're riveted on Jesus with nothing but question marks. He has diverted the attention of the entire crowd and of the accusers away from the woman. I guess she was looking too. What, what on earth is he doing? This is not normal. And finally, he sort of stands, half stands. He says he, he rose up, he got up. And he looks straight past her to those accusers. And almost as sort, yeah, yeah, let's go ahead. Um, he that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. No one had ever thought that in one sentence he would blow the whole plot to pieces. But of course, and this is where part of what I said earlier comes in, and I've yet to find, I haven't found a translation that translates the Greek here. The original language here does not say that. Yet every translation I read says what I just said. What is in the Greek there is he that is without this sin. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. These guys knew that woman of the street. They knew her well. He that is without this sin, let him cast the first stone. And as if he has now solved the whole problem, he goes back to doodling in the dust. And there's dead silence. Not only from the accusers who are looking at each other, where do we go from here? This was not in the plan. But also I can see the unease in the crowd. As many a man is hoping he doesn't turn in their direction. It was as if the light of God's love poured into that temple courtyard because he didn't accuse anybody. You notice that. He did not pick up and now become the accuser. He simply said what he said. Went back to doodling. Um... And the light did its work. Well, they all left, beginning, it says, interestingly, from the eldest. The old men were the first to go. Um, but that I said the light did its work. The fact is they, like roaches, fled from the light because the light turned on should have brought every one of those guys before Jesus and says, you know, well, it, they, I mean, they, they, they should have come apart and said, we're a bunch of hypocrites. They, they, they should have come to the light and let the light do its perfect work. Instead, they ran for their lives back through the crowds, hiding their own face now. And the woman stands on. And the Bible says so beautifully, and she was alone with Jesus. Even though there was a great crowd there, she was alone with Jesus. And he keeps on writing. And then he stops and he stands. 
And he looks and he says, um, where are the accusers? Is no one accusing you? Where, where, where's the accusers gone? Um, that, that's interesting right there because number one, he stood. He could have sat down on the floor of the temple as if he were a judge. He would, I mean, he's sitting, you're standing there as the accused. Instead, he stands up and they're eye to eye, face to face. He stood in honor of her. But then, I didn't say it there, did I? He said, woman. Now, that's not too good a word here in the West. But it is the highest form of honor and respect that you can give to a lady in the New Testament. It is, well, let me tell you, when he spoke to his mother, the Virgin Mary, he called her woman. It's the highest, I cannot emphasize enough. It, it is a son to his mother, but it is a human being to one highly honored and highly respected. It, it, it's someone you would say you're, you're an innocent lady, a pure lady, woman. Oh dear woman. That's all the ideas attached to the, this word. Highest respect. She'd never been called a woman in her memory. I doubt her miserable husband had ever called her a woman. Um, he called her a woman. And he said, where are your accusers? Meaning, I'm not an accuser. The accusers have left. And so she said, and this is one of the most astounding phrases in the New Testament. She said, no man, Lord... Lord, that word in the, in the epistles is the word that is the Greek equivalent to I am of the Old Testament. When they take an Old Testament text and translate into Greek for I am, it's this word. Where, what, what happened when the lights turned on and sent the accusers running like roaches. For her, it was the light who revealed who Jesus really was. And I don't know how much he understood. It just leaves me speechless to read it. That this woman standing before love that she didn't even know how to define it. And yet she realizes somehow that she's standing in the presence of I am, the God of Israel met with the God she'd never known. The only God she knew was that miserable wretch the Pharisees had invented. But she's meeting the real God and she knew it straight away. No man. So then he said, neither do I <coughs> condemn you. The word condemn is, um, that's a little bit more than accuse. When, when a person is condemned, that is the goal that all accusations were moving to. Do, do you understand what I mean? They're, they're, you're accused, well, you're accused. But when your accusation is proven, then you become the condemned. And usually condemned has in it um, some form of punishment. So we would say you're condemned to death or you're condemned to 40 years in jail. Uh, there's, a, there's a certain 
um, always a, a result to condemn. Neither do I condemn you. Con- condemnation holds you. I mean, you can say what you like about me, accuse me, but condemned means we got you, and you're now held to that, and you will always be known that's what you did. You're condemned, if nothing else, to being ID'd as the person. It's your record. They've got you. This is part of your life. Live with it. It's going to be there forever. It's tattooed upon you. This is who you are. It's public shaming. You're a condemned man. You're a condemned woman. It's your shaming. Oh, neither do I condemn you. I mean, I, I hope you're getting this. I said I needed two hours and I'm maybe going too fast, but the Supreme Court of the Temple, the Temple Police, said this woman... We accuse her and she should be stoned. But the supreme judge of heaven and earth overthrows the lesser court and announces case dismissed, which means the woman is innocent. Dismissed. There is no record of sin. It is not. Case dismissed. We all go home. There was a custom, and, and um, Andrew introduced me to this. So if he preaches on this in the future, you know I got it from him. He didn't get it from me. That um, if if you were in debt and you couldn't pay, then the person you owed the money to would take you to court. And it was a circular thing, very much the same as we, we have here. And the the accuser stands there in the middle and has a written document that enumerates everything that is owed and makes the accusation. Well, if, if the money is paid, if the debt is lifted, someone now comes from the court, goes to the accuser, who's holding this accusation and tears it from his hand and takes it to a place in the court where he doubles it over so you can't read it and nails it to a post. And the accuser is never again to mention what once was owed. Now, having said that, let me read what Paul said in Colossians 2.14. He said, well, I'll go back. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out, and here it is, the exact language of what I just said, the certificate of debt, that piece of paper held, with everything you owe right there in your face, written down, and held by the accuser against you. He said, having canceled the certificate of debt, consisting of the decrees or the accusation against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's exactly what Jesus did with this woman. That was Colossians 2.14. 
That's exactly what he did with the woman. He, in that one sentence, ripped the accusation out of the hands of the Pharisees and nailed it to his own self, which would end up on the cross and say, that's mine to take care of. And this lady can never be accused again. She is free. She is set free, case dismissed. It's the great exchange. This is, in one sense, the word of the gospel, exchange. I said it once already, but he comes, and the word in the scripture is he bears He takes and puts upon himself, and he himself ones with us, so that what we were, what we owed, all that was written on that paper about us, has now become true of him. And when it's true of him, he absolves it. He exonerates us. He says, it's over, it's done. You now become what I am. And the, the exchange and... I can understand why religion has tried to keep this out of the Bible. This is, this is monstrous. This, this is taking it too far, says Augustine. Um, we, we can't do that. Put it out of the Bible. No, this is the gospel. He bears in his own body on the cross, which we've talked about for weeks now, that, that he actually bears it and it's dismissed. It's dismissed. When the high court of heaven says, case dismissed, it's dismissed. Can you put yourself in her head now? An ecstasy of joy. If she could even find words to say joy. It's that worst day of her existence has now become a day of resurrection. Or you could put it this way, she met Jesus inside hell. Because if ever the hell could be described, it's what that woman was going through. She met Jesus there. A hell that was entwined with religion. She met him right there in hell. Uh, Of course, that's normal for Jesus because he has the keys of death and hell. And so he's perfectly at home. He'll meet you in any hell because he owns it all. And um, hell has no power. He stands right in the middle of it. And he met her there. And then he said, go. That's interesting. Go. means move forward from here. Don't, Don't stand here contemplating your past and thinking, no, it's all over, lady. Go into a future that eye has not seen and you've never had a heart to imagine it. But it's yours. Go into your future. Go and sin no more. Okay, we got to take time out. What's he saying here? He is not talking about behavior primarily. He's not saying, now you did this, now from here on you don't do that anymore. That's not what he's saying. Sin. In the singular, sin. Go and sin no more. What does sin mean? What's the definition of sin? And hold it carefully because I know many people have already decided what sin is. But we, you start too late. If I ask the average person on the street what is sin, they usually say, well, you know, it's murder, 
adultery, they'll bring this very thing up, uh, you know, lying. Well, no, that's way down the line there. Come on, come on back. What is sin? That's what is produced by sin, maybe, behavior. But what is it? And the word, let me just simply tell you, we, we loosely, very loosely translate it missing the mark. That is kind of true. But let me give you the word piece by piece. It begins by meaning, well, let, let me go back to Romans 3.23. Uh, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Come short there means to lose altitude. It, it's a fall, but you're going down. H have you ever been on a plane that begins to lose altitude? Um it was not very nice when it happened to me and all the oxygen things came down out of the roof. Uh, you know, they, we, we, I'm, I'm supposed to be flying at 40,000 and now down, 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 down. Um, that's the meaning of this word. You're, you're, you're missing where you should be. Okay, miss the mark. But it means you're, you're coming down. That's why it's called the fall. It was the coming down. And, and you now are where you were not supposed to be. You're now not where the blueprint said this should be flying. You're losing altitude. And what have you fallen from? It says you've come short. You've fallen away from the glory of God. And we've spent time before defining glory, the glory of God. Its first meaning is opinion, which means I've fallen short of the opinion of God concerning me. I've fallen short of his opinion that I am his beloved, that I am created to live in union with him. I've fallen short of that. In fact, fallen short. I've lost sight of it. In, in what is ever happening here, I feel separated away from that God altogether. In fact, to the point where I now see God as this miserable being who is against me who, because I'm falling, is now going to punish me for falling. And so I'll, I'll fall quicker to get away from that God that I now perceive him to be. I am plunging into the darkness of the lie, and that lie has marred and tarred and twisted the character of God. But also it mars and twists me, because I know myself in the eyes of God. When God sees me and I see how God sees me, then I know who I am. And it's gone like this woman now had seen herself in the eyes of her accusers. I am what they say I am. And I cannot be any other than I am. And I'm frozen into that. And now it's all changed for this woman. <laughs> can, can I sort of paraphrase what Jesus was really saying looking into this lady this woman he's essentially saying before time before Genesis 1 before anything was created in the cosmos you dear lady you were conceived in the mind and in the heart of the father he's your original parent and he conceived you in his mind 
out of unlimited love. And before your first heartbeat, before your first breath was taken, before you had that first cry, before you ever became a thinking human being, it was all determined. You were purposely or purposefully or intentionally chosen. You're, you're special in the biggest sense of the word. You were chosen. You were celebrated. You were delighted in, given a destiny of union with the Holy Trinity. You, lady, you, you came into being from the mind of God to be the beloved of God. That's who you are. That's the design. That, that's the reason of your creation. That's your identity. That's who you are. No one can change that because that's how you came fresh from the created hand of God. Can I see it in the eyes of Jesus? He that has seen him has seen the Father. He was essentially saying it was our, our, me and the Father and the Holy Spirit. It was our intention to include you into the circle of divine love. That's what it was all about. That you would participate with us in our joy and our peace and honor. That's what it was all about, lady. And you were sucked into the lie, into the darkness. You, you lost consciousness of the glory of God that you were the focus of. You, you lost sight of the beloved Father. And it was replaced by the evil, wicked eyes of religion who did nothing but put you down, despise you, call you a nothing. Huh. But now, I set you free from the lie. I set you free from where you plummeted down. I set you free with all its grief and all its sorrow and the resultant behavior. I set you free. So come, let us go into a future in which you're no longer dominated and directed by the lie. But rather you come to a new life of seeing who you really are and dwelling in the love of God. And I can't help saying it because it's very important. That was his faith. <laughs> she couldn't even imagine the words, let alone the faith to do it. No, that was his faith. He looks into her, and that's why I in injected there, he's saying, come, let us, because that's essentially what he was saying. Go and sin no more. Boy, have we got a future together. Let Come, come. With, let, let, let us go. And, and she, I mean, if I could put words in her mouth, she said, I, I can't have faith for that. Let, forget it. Look at my, no, I'm not looking at your anything. Um, my faith, my faith. I came to save you and to bring you to where I am. It's my faith to do it. And we're going, come. Did I say she was turned to ice? She could no longer feel, no longer give any feeling 
Nobody take. She had no comprehension of what love was. Couldn't let a man touch her. She's frozen. Have you ever, you, I'm sure you've read Narnia. You know C.S. Lewis's. Do you remember when the White Witch turned everybody into concrete? They became statues, and then Aslan came and licked them, and they began moving again and became human. The words that Jesus spoke to this woman were pure fire that melted the ice. She is discovering love, and in that love, she will now be able to feel love and to give love because the stone, the concrete statue, has been licked by the very spittle of Aslan. She's coming alive, and she's feeling She's human. She's everything that was intended. She is beloved of God and she can now actually know the possibility of being a beloved on earth. And almost impossible to her to say beloved to someone else. That's what it does. Go and sin no more. You're free from this terrible, terrible, loveless bondage. But go and sin no more. It is a command. I mean, it's imperative. You know what I mean by that? That's, so the, the word command doesn't appear there, but what he says is, and we have been here before, but it's good to say it again. In the New Testament, the word command, I used to hate the word command. You know, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Yes, you know. That, that sounds like a Pharisee. Um, no, the word in the Greek, and let me tell it to you because I know someone will wonder where I get it from. The word is entole, E-N-T-O-L-E, entole, and it means, it means the implanting that is not screaming in your ear. It is the gentle implanting by the Holy Spirit, the implanting inside of us of a complete vision. Remember I told you that T-O-L-E is in the same family as when Jesus said it's finished. And so this that he implants within us is a inner seeing. I'll say vision, but I don't want you to get the idea it's some, you know, lightning and thunder sort of thing. It's, it's a gentle seeing with inside eyes of the end, the completed done thing and it's saying that's where we are it's done and i'm putting inside of you the seeing the vision of its being done which means i now work from that the law says you've got to become that and so i try to move toward it with struggle and hardly imagine where i'm going but this word says, I'm putting the complete picture in your heart. And now that's where you are. That's the truth. And you're going to start moving from that. And that that's where I am. And I'm going to move from it and become who I am. Because that's what Jesus just did to the woman. That woman standing there to say, go and sin no more. Religion would fall off its chair laughing. 
But Jesus said, that's who you are. You are the woman. You are no longer condemned. You are no longer accused. You are righteous with my righteous. You are innocent. And she would go all the way to the upper room and know the Holy Spirit would come to dwell within her. And also I have to throw this in, but of course this is where another hour would be in place. But we all, I doubt honestly, there's one of us that haven't touched this somewhere. This, this is the extreme. But we've touched that throwaway. We've touched it that you're no good, rejected, betrayed, all those hideous words. We've touched it. We've tasted it. It's not a foreign language to us. And it's buried down inside of us somewhere. Um, the church, and I prefer the name to be the original Greek word in the New Testament, ecclesia, because church today brings with it the baggage of an organization, it being baggage of legal and, and uh, rules and membership that you sign a card and all that stuff. Um, no, I'm not talking about that. I, I'm talking about the original meaning ecclesia, which means a community of people who are consciously aware that they, they're confronting and filled with the love of God and therefore now are givers of the love of God. And if that sounds extreme, Jesus said it. I'm sorry, I just quoted him. I don't know if you noticed. But he said, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. Um, and then he goes on, Love one another as I have loved you. So you love one another with the very same agape that he loved you. That makes some community. She had come from the community of rejection. How did she know that? Well, Satan is the great rejecter. He is the separator. He's the accuser. But he didn't say it straight to her face. How did she know that? She was in a community of the accusers. She was in a community of rejection. And every time she looked up, she was slapped in the face to look down. That is the community of this world in general. She is now brought, and we so often miss this altogether. We say, well, they got saved. <laughs> well, what do you mean by that? <laughs> in the first hundreds of years of the church, it meant they have come into the community of the ecclesia for the ecclesia to love you with the love of God until you get it. Another who is beloved and knows they're beloved and now calls you beloved, you, you further melt. That becomes the word of God that melts the ice. It becomes the kiss of Aslan. We, we experience it somewhat in this little group here. Uh, I've often said I really didn't have to preach here. We just come here and love each other. And some even can't wait to get through Saturday to get here and just love each other. And I'm not being cute here. It's it's a fact. I know the love God has toward me, not only by the Holy Spirit, but by the Holy Spirit in you telling me so. The same way as 
Satan hates you, but you know it because he talks through a lot of people around you. It's the way it is. You've come to a new community, lady. You've come to a new world. That, that's the gospel. I've looked at that woman probably for decades now, but especially in the last three or four weeks. And I realized so many, in fact, it became very, very plain, so many believers, but they're standing right now frozen in the temple courtyard, right inside of religion. They stand frozen. What a place. You would think they'd stand frozen maybe in a bar or in a casino. No. Standing frozen to death in religion. The highest place in religion, the temple. Well, he has the keys of that hell. And he's standing right there in the middle of it. Jesus in the middle of hell on earth. And he speaks and his words melt us. And we become human again. Or as the Old Testament prophesied it, he's the son of S-U-N, sun in the sky. He is the son of righteousness with healing in his rays. Jesus is the rising sun in our life and his rays penetrate the ice and melts us so that we can now know love and and find that it's love that activates our arms and legs and we move and we think and we feel and we love and we give love and we receive love because we've become alive. Well, I'm amazed at myself. We did it in an hour. But to me, there is a depth of God's love here that I just can't say in an hour. I don't think I could say it in 10 weeks. And so may the Holy Spirit open the eyes of our understanding and see the love that surpasses anything we could ever imagine. And now the blessing of God who is almighty love, almighty love, endless love, limitless love, unconditional love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit bless you with Holy Spirit enlightenment that you this day shall awake to the hope of your calling to stand the one honored, beloved in the very eye-to-eye presence of Jesus and the Father in the Spirit. To that end, I now bless you and declare that is the way it is. Amen. And amen.